uh, just their trip and their experiences. If anyone who's been to Haiti, um, it's like watch, looking at a slideshow of family portraits. You know, like these are, these are family. Um, we just love the church down there, and um, many of you have sponsored kids in that orphanage, in one of the orphanages uh, depicted, and uh, man, it's just super cool seeing them. And, and if you haven't yet signed up for the trip to Haiti, uh, that one, one week is, I think it's almost full, which is the last week of December, and there's a couple spots left in January, the January one. Make sure you talk to one of us on staff or go to the info table to get information on that. It's going to be really, really great. Well, we're in a parallel series, a series where we're looking at, and if you wonder what this whole weird thing is, if you're new to this church, uh, the red is, is depicting the words of Christ that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount were talking to his followers about his perspective and just radically changing that. We see an echo and a parallel from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in the words of his brother James. In the book of James, it, the book of James itself is an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. And then the final bar is the echo that we see and the parallel that we're praying for in our lives. Going from the words of Jesus to the parallel in James's book to the parallel that we see uh, in Christ in our own life. Today, um, if you could open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. I'll have the passage in James on the screen, but if you're in chapter 7, that'll be good in case you wanted to highlight or check that out or have that on your phone. And what we're going to be talking about today um, is how not to be that judgy guy that everybody judges. Um, All of us know one of these people. Many of us are these people. Um, How many of you just knowing and just just thinking about growing up, let's say before you were 25 or so, growing up um, you knew someone that just really fit the definition of, man, this person is just so judgmental. Anyone? Okay. All right, and, and again, that's, some of these people are still a part of our lives, and we, we, we are family, or, or we go to church with them, or whatever. Um, these judgmentalism is something that is a human condition. I don't care if you're an atheist, um, if you're a Buddhist, or you're a Christian, every single human being struggles with being uber judgmental, being that, that just being something that we do. In part because judgment isn't wrong. I mean, judgment is a good thing. To be able to make a wise, discerning decision, you have to have judgment. That's good. We just kind of like take it to the varsity level by becoming judgmental. And so today, we're going to be not just talking about how not to be that one judgy guy everybody judges, but maybe more specifically, how does Jesus change the way we talk to people about their issues? And, and if, you're, if you're someone who's not a Christian, I just want to encourage you just to sit back, relax, and enjoy this message, because this is really targeting the other people in this room who are Christians. Because as Christians, we have had just one epic fail after another of depicting who Jesus is and what he's called us to in regards to how we judge people. In fact, if you think about Christians, a lot of times when people are thinking about them or having to define them, they define them through that lens. They're judgmental. In 2007, there was a survey that showed that 90% of 16 to 29-year-olds said that Christians are too judgmental, like specifically. I mean, it, it, that, that's a group that they identified as the most judgmental, 90%. And if you're looking for what do they mean by that, like wh- what is that in regards to, it's regarding a lot of different issues, social issues and personal experiences, but a good running definition, it would be found on the Urban Dictionary, which says, judgmentalism is a way of making oneself feel better. By hurting others, usually caused by closed-mindedness and a lack of manners. A theologian had, a, had a, maybe a fuller description by saying this, judgment, being judgmental is, is a critical self-righteous spirit 
which judges others more severely than it does itself. It emphasizes one set of sins over another set of sins. It excuses one's own faults, but will not excuse the faults of others. Christians are, like every other breathing person on the planet, judgmental. And oftentimes, we apparently go to the top of the list of people's minds when they think about that issue. So I was trying to think about, historically, has that always been something that we pegged Christians with? I mean, have Christians always just been these judgmental people? I mean, was it back in the first century when there was massive persecution and Christians are being killed? Is it like, oh man, I can't stand how they look down at us. Let's kill them. They're just so like high and mighty. They think that they know everything. And they're they're just like, they're the moral police of the world. I say we just burn them. How? Anyone? Anyone? No. If you go back to the first century, Christians were known for a lot of things. They were known for being empty-headed. They're like, how could you possibly believe in this Messiah that you say was crucified and he rose again? And you believe that? They they were looked at as people who were just completely had no logical, philosophical uh, underpinnings, which helped them navigate life. Because Christians would go to the places where Roman citizens would throw babies that were deformed and they would rescue these babies and say, these, these babies are, are created in the image of God and we're going to save them. And so people looked at Christians as, as idiots, but not judgmental. That wasn't something that we got pegged on early on. But if we look in scripture, we see that, that the seeds of that mentality goes right down to the very beginning. And it's actually something that Jesus constantly was trying to help his disciples see, this is not my way. And one of the the most poignant pictures that I can think of that maybe we don't often associate with judgmental attitude or behavior is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is arrested. In the garden, you've got the disciples, okay? And you've got Peter. And Peter's a guy who's claimed that Jesus is not only a rabbi, not only a good teacher, but he's actually the son of God. These guys have given up everything for this Jesus. They've they've left their homes. They've put their reputation on the line in part because they think this guy is who he claims to be. He's Messiah. He's the one who's going to do something amazing. But not just amazing religiously. This guy is going to bring back to Israel the rightful standing of this is our land. And it's going to vanquish the enemy. And the the Roman Empire is going to be kicked to the curb. Woohoo! Jesus is the guy. He's the one the Old Testament has been talking about. Boom! We're behind this guy. I just can't wait for him to step up and start to do it. I mean, because right now he's healing people and bringing people back from the dead. That's great. Cool. But we're still oppressed by the Romans. But this guy's the guy. He's going he's gonna to take him out. Just wait. And then Peter's in the garden and he sees the Roman guards walking through the, the, through the garden on the Mount of Olives to arrest Jesus. And Peter has to be thinking, this is it. See, Jesus is just so theatrical. He's been having a dramatic pause on action until this moment. And now, this is where we're going to start seeing... It's going to be like the last scene of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's going to be all over the place. And these guys are just going to be totally blown to smithereens by the Messiah. And then he watches as Jesus begins to get arrested. It's like, okay, this is your moment. Come on. He's not doing anything. Why is he not doing anything? We are the winners here. We, we have been treated like losers our whole life, but we are behind the champion who's going to bring us into victory. Why is he being arrested? Why is he letting this happen? And all of a sudden, Peter does something. Peter's like, if he's not going to take action, if he's not going to be Messiah enough, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to step in and help him out. And Jesus draws the sword. Now, when you put on Facebook that you want a sword from your church... <laughs> 
it's weird when you have like 150 people saying, we've got one. <laughs> Which one, do you want any, do you want, do you want, do you want, a, do you want a machine gun too? I mean, we can ho- hook you up with that. It's really disturbing and yet kind of cool. So, the, Peter's blade was probably a little bit longer than this one, right about there. And what Peter does is he draws the sword and what does he do with it? Does he say, halt in the name of the Messiah! We are the victors! Step back. No. He's like, I'll show you what I can do. And he chops the guy's ear off. Like you do. Why would you do that? The reason I believe Peter was doing that is this. I am tired of waiting for him to do what needs to be done. If Jesus is not going to step up and defend himself, I'm going to defend him. Again, we are the winners here. This is not going to go down like this. We are the champions here. He can't be arrested. If he gets arrested, he'll probably be crucified. That is not how the story is going to go. I'm going to take action myself. And the cut happens. And the cut's been happening ever since. See, I believe that when you look at any time you have Christians that think that they're, we are the champions. We're in power. We have a tendency to look down on others and we don't draw the blade all the time. But we draw the blade of our mouth and we will cut them down and cut them down and cut them down. We're going to show them who's boss. And, and if Jesus needs to be defended, well, if, I'm tired of him not saying anything. I'm going to be the one who's going to defend him and I'm going to cut them down. I'm going to cut them down. I'm going to cut them down. And in the garden, Jesus just looks at him and at Peter's like, what are you doing? And he picks up that ear off the ground. I don't know what he did, but I just can imagine. And he puts it on the guy's head again. Looking at Peter like, have have I taught you nothing? You think this is how this is supposed to go? You think this is how my movement is going to bring healing to the land? You have no idea. The reality is it is far greater than that. And unfortunately, as believers, we have not picked up on that reality. And through the years, when Christians have been in some level of superiority, either intellectually or morally or whatever, or just politically, oftentimes we get into a stance that puts out this vibe that is very un-Christ-like. Gandhi is a guy who um, was an individual who Christians came up to him and said, why, don't, why do you keep rejecting Christ? Why don't you just become a Christian? And he said, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you, your you Christians are so unlike your Christ. I don't reject Jesus. What I've read of him, I, I think is, is profoundly compelling. But when I look at Christians, it doesn't sync up. And so I'm just going to admire his teachings from afar, but I'm not going to give myself to this movement filled with you people. What Peter experienced and Gandhi called out John Calvin in the 16th century identified as his own issue. John Calvin, who was a guy, if you know of anything about Calvinism, it's something that's to the point. It's very, you know, this is, this is the way it is. It's cut and dry, black and white. John Calvin was not a guy who would have written Hallmark cards. Um, just, and that's kind of his truth. And l- listen to what John Calvin said. I so appreciate this. He said, judgmentalism is a disease which appears to be natural to us all. We see how all flatter themselves, and every man passes a severe censure on others. This vice is attended by some strange enjoyment, for there is hardly any person who's not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. 
When that guy at work that's always been doing so good and you've always been underneath him as far as your work level, and all of a sudden something happens where he gets diminished, you're like, yes, justice. When you troll Facebook for high school friends, hoping to find someone who didn't age well so you can go, yes, justice. We do this. This is sick. But we do this. And so when we come back to that that survey, applying it to us as Christians, this concept of judgmentalism is something that we either say, yep, and I'm totally justified in being judgmental. They are far from God. I'm going to be the bullhorn of the Lord to let everyone know how far off they are. Or, you know what? I don't want to be like that kind of Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be judgmental. And so we fall into one of two faults, one of two like epic fails as Christians. One is thinking that because we are saved, we have nothing critical to say to others. I just don't want to be a judgmental person. I was saved by grace. This is a gift of God, so I have nothing to say. I'm just going to just, hey, whatever you're doing, it's totally okay. I'm okay with it. I have no issues. Or, and that's a fail, because that's not true. Or we fall into the fail of thinking that because we are saved, we have everything to say. We are going to be the moral police. We're going to be the one who lets everyone know, hey, you want to know how far off you are? You want to know how hot and close to hell you are? Let me just tell you. Because we're going to let everyone know. And both of these are not the biblical perspective that we see modeled by Jesus when it comes to delving into difficult truth to somebody that we need to talk to. And so today we're going to be identifying on how to avoid the unhealthy and unhelpful practices of human judgmentalism by understanding three sides of the problem. We're going to be looking at the root of the problem of judgmentalism, the result of our problem, and the solution to our problem. And and this, this is taught throughout scripture, but we're going to be focusing in on chapter 7, beginning of chapter 7. Take a look, and let's just go ahead and read the first verse, just the first verse. Jesus, this is Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to a bunch of people and saying to them, listen, you've been taught a lot of different things, and that's great, but I want you to know for me, this is how we act and live as far as the people that are my disciples. He says this, I'm just going to read the first phrase, do not what? Do not judge. What's the big deal, Jesus? I mean, everybody judges. Why is that a big deal? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's totally normal and natural for everyone to judge. Everyone's judgmental. But if you're my follower, if you're building my kingdom, that cannot be congruent with what I'm doing inside of you. Here's why. The word that Jesus has that identifies this is that the word judge comes from a word for critic. And in fact, not just the word critic, it's like it eventually can also be developed into the word hypocrite which Jesus uses of the same people in verse 5 of this chapter. So Jesus is like, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to look at your calling as to be the critic. The person that is the critic. You walk into any room and you could find the fault. I mean, you're walking into a room, you're looking for the cracks. You walk into your house, you're looking for the problem. You look at your kids and you just see the issues that they have. Or you just see the issues that all of their friends have because your child is perfect. We become professional critics of our kids. Teachers of administrations, of governments, of everything. And it's not that, that, that Christians shouldn't be thinkers, but the fact is that we look at it as a calling to be the critic. And Jesus is like, that is perfectly normal and natural for people to think of that as a calling. Yeah. But in my kingdom, in my kingdom, it is not a calling. It's a casualty. This will be detrimental to the building of the kingdom if you look at that as your thing. Because if you make your objective and your role being the critic, you're going to end up criticizing others 
and not looking at yourself. The word hypocrite is this weird Greek fusion of a word, which is a theatrical term, which is describing someone behind a mask. And it's like, I'm pretending like everything inside of me is all perfect. And that's why I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out. I just hope that you don't see that behind the mask, I really have issues too. That's what the word hypocrite means. But we do this. I mean, I do this when I'm driving on the road. I've heard that uh, Pastor Carlos, he's mentioned before in his sermons that he has road rage issues. I think Pastor Dave's got road rage issues too. Me, I am totally laid back until... Until I'm driving and I see some like, you know, vehicle swerving around and I pull up next to them because I'm driving a truck, I can look down and see, I can read their Facebook post. They're like, just like, and, I, and all of a sudden some, some righteous indignation starts to boil within my body and I'm just like, how idiotic do you, you are, you are caught, you are being a, 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 someone who's doing something so dangerous you could hurt yourself and everyone else on this road. How selfish can you be? What, what an idiot. I hope a cop pulls that guy over. I hope that he pulls him over and then I, I hope I get to see it so I can go, Booyah! What? And I, I just want to be there when that, that guy who's texting does this. And then two weeks ago, I'm driving and it's me and it's Julie and it's the kids in the minivan and I'm driving and all of a sudden my phone buzzes in my pocket. Now, I'm not going to read it. I just want to check it. And so I'm just like, because it could be an emergency, right? Who knows? And, and all of a sudden, Julie's like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? You, you know better than that, Errol. That's so unsafe. You could cause danger to everyone in our car and everyone on the road. How can you do that? I'm like, man. I felt so dejected. Until Ryland from the back seat said, but mom, you did that yesterday. <laughs> We do this. This is us. We are like so professional at seeing other people's faults and not seeing our own. That is who we are. So why is this a big deal to Jesus? Because Jesus is like, that doesn't work in my kingdom. The root of this is so messed up. And you don't think, you just think that you're just calling people's faults out. You're not. The root of it is so much uglier than that. His brother James identifies this in chapter 4 when James says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. And the word for slander in Greek is talk down. Don't be looking down, talking down against one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not, just, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge. The one who's able to save and destroy. Who is that, by the way? That's Jesus. James is like, there's one person who should be the judge. He can save, he can destroy, but one. He knows the law. He's a good judge. And that's Jesus. And you're not him. We're like a bunch of kindergartners putting on, like, you know, Judge Mathis robes. Thinking that, like, we know the law. And pretending that we do as we're ridiculing others. And he's saying, no, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, the thing that, that's interesting about this is not just that, that James echoes what he's saying, but the English uh, study Bible, the study, or the um, English Standard Version, the study Bible of that says that 
This, what James is talking about in chapter 4, is actually the result of what takes place in the book of James before it. Like if you, got, if you ate some really garbagey things and you ended up feeling really nauseous and sick and you ended up throwing up, this is the throw up. This is the vomit. What it comes before it is the garbage we put into our system. What comes before it is actually the roots of the problem. And if you look throughout James and you see that the roots of the problem are arrogance, jealousy, self-centeredness, and pride. When we get critical of other people, we might be thinking we're coming from this holy place like, man, I'm just, oh, I, I'm just doing this because I just know what God's way is and this person's so far off, boom, I'm going to let them know. But if we interrogated ourselves and evaluated ourselves more often than not, we're going to see that what is the root of our cri- critical nature and our judgmentalism is arrogance. You know what? I, I, I feel, for the first time in my life, I feel better than someone else. Like, I'm finally, I've arrived I'm looking at this guy who clearly hasn't. And I've worked hard to get to this point. He hasn't? How dare he? I'm going to let him know. Jealousy. You may have been feeling from someone like you were always put down or you were always lower than somebody. And then you get a chance to watch them fail and the victory that you feel. That doesn't come from a holy place. It comes from a jealous place. Self-centered. Pride. When we boil down our judgmentalism, oftentimes these are the roots so what's the big deal? Why is Jesus so like flustered with this as, as his kingdom people exhibiting this? It's because of what James said. There's only one lawgiver and one judge. And that's Jesus. When we step into people's lives as their judge and jury with judgmentalism and that looking down type of perspective, what we're doing is we're kicking Jesus off the throne and saying, look, I can do this. And Jesus is saying, that's idolatry. That doesn't come from holiness or wisdom. That comes from arrogance, jealousy, and pride, self-centeredness. And that's not who you are. The root of the problem is so messed up. And that's not who I want you to be. When we do this, we become a crooked judge, not a good judge like Jesus. We become a crooked judge with a deformed soul, poisoned by pride, arrogance, and cynicism. Whenever we act in this way, it's like we're taking our soul with a ball-peen hammer and just banging it out of shape over and over and over again to the point that everyone is going to get from us this skewed perspective where we're just bent on finding people's faults and exploding at them or, or, or talking with them in some sort of way to get them to a point of being right. The root, the root is self-glorification. That's the root of the problem. The result of the problem is, is interesting. In chapter 7 verse 1 says, do not judge. And then the last part of that verse says, or you too will be judged. So here's, here's the result. You, if you judge, if you're judgmental, the result is that that's going to come right back at you. And in chapter, chapter 7, verse 2 says, for in the same way, not in a similar way or in a percentage of, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it'll be measured against you. Which, this kind of sounds kind of like karma. You know, like the, the Buddhist Hindu concept of karma. You know, you do bad, bad's going to happen to you. Do good, good's going to happen to you. But we realize that karma doesn't work in reality. People who do a lot of good, bad stuff happens to them. People who do bad, good things happen to them. Karma, karma's a joke. And this is better than karma. Because this is not just Jesus saying, listen, if you judge someone, you're going to get judged so that you know, justice happens. What he's saying is this. My job is to finish my work in you. I'm going to finish the work I have in you. And you're going to become more and more like me. That's my, my, if you're a believer, that is your story. Jesus is going to finish his work in you. This aspect of humanity is poisonous 
And we don't wake up to the fact that it's wrong because a lot of times we feel self-justified and self-righteous in it. And so Jesus is like this. Okay, so here's the deal. If you're judgmental, I think the only way, knowing humans, the only way that I can get through to you is this. You're impatient with people. I'm going to bring people into your life that are impatient with you. You're totally flustered with the incompetence uh, and the inefficiency of the government or Walmart or whatever. I'm going to bring people into your life that are going to be so poignantly aware of your faults and let you know. And then you wonder where all these people came from. Where did, why is it that I'm surrounded by such messed up people? And Jesus is like, well, I believe that's his way of refining us and letting us wake up to the point of saying, this attitude, this way that I'm approaching this is not congruent with who Jesus is and who he's making me into. And so I need to recognize that in the same way that that's happening, I need to, I need to communicate with them. I need to recognize that the way that I communicate with others matters. It can't just be something that's truthful. The way that I do it matters. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the, with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So the root is kind of this self-glorification of, of who we are, uh, kicking Jesus out of the judgment seat and putting ourselves there. Uh, the result of the problem is that we're going to receive right back to us the, the medicine that we've been dishing out so that we wake up and then he can actually get us back on track with finishing the work that, that he wants to do in us. And the solution is sweet because in order for us not to fall into that category of just being a Christian that's intellectually dishonest, and we're just going to mute ourselves. Like, I mean, is, is Jesus saying that I shouldn't express any judgment? That I, that I, shouldn't, that I shouldn't, like, go up to brothers and sisters who are, who are doing something that is absolutely harmful? Should I just, like, be quiet and say, well, God, you just got to take care of them, so I'm just going to just stay on the sidelines and I'm going to pretend like I don't see it? Is that loving? Is that, is that the picture that God is painting in this, in this passage? I don't believe it is. I think that the solution we see through Jesus' words and throughout the, throughout the whole of Scripture can be summed up in this sentence that our, our, as far as our approach and, and when we're communicating about hard issues to people, we're doing this. We're approaching our brothers and sisters in Christ as one who carries both the sting of sin and the freedom of forgiveness in a personal and gentle way for their good and God's glory. Let me unpack that. First off, to approach our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, sometimes uh, when we are saved, we think that it's our obligation to be the moral police of the entire world and let everyone know, hey, listen, we know God and, and you don't, and that's clear because you're messing everything up. So, and we, we kind of like, we find our, our opportunity to call people out. When it, within regard to speaking and confronting people about issues of sin, the interesting thing we see in Scripture, however, is especially within the church, this identification that our objective is not to do that with those outside of the church, but those inside. Paul, in, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, there's this guy who was doing this really, really messed up stuff. And we've got some younger kids in here, so I'm not going to say what he was doing, but it was messed up. And it was something that people were like, well, maybe we shouldn't just, just not say anything. And Paul's like, you have to say something. This is, if you allow this toxicity to just remain unchecked and you're just allowing it to happen, it's going to poison the whole of you. You guys need to deal with this guy. He's been talked to so many times. You need, to, you need to have him remove himself if he's not willing to come under the leadership of the church. Just kick him out. And so some people were like, oh, so like people who do bad stuff are sinful people. We're saved by Christ. And so what we should do is distance ourselves from sinful people. And Paul's like, no, you've totally missed the whole point. He said this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
In no way did I mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters since you would then have to go out of the world. Basically, you're surrounded by these people and if you're going to be God's light to this world, you can't just hang around with the redeemed. You can't just hang around with church people. If you do that, where's the light? And he says, no, that's not what I was saying. For what do I have to do with judging those outside, those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? But God will judge those outside. Let God take care of those who are not saved. Okay, let God take care of that. Let us be the people that are, that are making sure that we're walking alongside one another in such a way that we're speaking truth into one another. Not feeling like, man, it's so weird that this person who's re- unredeemed and God's never started to transform his life, he's acting like he's unredeemed and like God's never transformed his life. It's just so weird. Like he's far from God and he's acting like it. I don't understand. That makes sense. When we're followers of Jesus and we're far from God, that's when we need to step into each other's lives and speak truth. Now, we do need to be the type of people that are not just like culturally, just uh, again, intellectually dishonest and not saying anything about what happens in, in our culture, especially when we have a vote. I mean, if, if, you, if you are blessed enough to be in a country that gives you a chance to vote, you should. Because that's, that's being, a good, being a good steward of that. Um, it's just recognizing that people like William Wilberforce did such a great job of recognizing slavery and how messed up slavery was in the UK and fought it. He fought the issue of slavery. He didn't fight the people. Jesus, against sin, and he hung out with sinners. He was a friend of people who were far, far, far from God, and he, and he indwelled uh, an opportunity to be around them and such that it was just massive. But when we're talking about confronting people on their sexual issues, their sinful issues, their gossip issues, we need to realize that Paul's perspective is this is something that happens between brothers and sisters in Christ. So we approach our brothers and sisters in Christ as one who carries both the sting of sin and the freedom of forgiveness. This is important. Um, take a look at verse what Jesus is saying right after he's saying don't judge or you too will be judged. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is talking and, and as a guy who grew up in a carpenter's house, he understood the reality of sometimes um, bits and pieces of wood gets, you know, flung up into your face and gets caught in your eye. OSHA wasn't super active in the first century and so bad things happen. Um, but the word is not just sawdust, it's more like a twig, like something that was used in a nest for a bird. And so Jesus is like, you see somebody with this in their eye, that's an issue. I mean, if you had this lodged in your eye, would you not be freaking out a little bit? This isn't good. This isn't like, ah, it's all right, no big deal. No, this is a big thing. You should address this. If someone's walking around your office, and this is like going around, and you say nothing, you're like, I just, uh, yeah, yeah. Jesus is saying, no, you're looking at someone who's got this issue. It is an issue, but you have this issue. You have a plank in yours. Now, you're on the work side as a carpenter. You get this lodged in your eye, that's a bad day. You get this lodged in your face, that's a bad year, okay? You're going home, you're going to the hospital with this. And Jesus is like, when you've got this in your face, and you're going around to people who've got this, and you're like, man, you've got some serious issues. Look what's coming out of your eye. People are like, who are you to tell me that? And so what Jesus is saying is this, 
you need to first take care of the thing that's in your face before you take care of the thing that's in their face. Before you get in their face, deal with your own. Be, be the type of person that, that's owning that, that's recognizing that. And I think that's, that's to help us avoid being hypocrites, but it's more than that. As one who carries both the sting of sin and the freedom of forgiveness, you go to someone after you have first dealt with your own sin and you know what it feels like to be forgiven. You go just on your moral authority, you know what it's like to be right. Totally different tone than going up to a brother or sister and saying, listen, you know that I've got issues. You know that, I, that, that God is still working me out in, in, in my life and helping me be more and more like Jesus. And I'm asking forgiveness all the time because of things that are going on in my life. Just last Thursday, this happened. You knew that that happened. And I know the end of that story. And so when I ask God for forgiveness, I experience the freedom that comes from being reconnected with him. And this, this is going on in you, man. And this, I know the end of this story, and you know the end of this story. Why don't you give this over to God? So that this isn't something that, that inhibits you any further. I'm telling you this because I care about you. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. Whatever. That is a completely different tone. And so when Jesus in this passage in Matthew 7 is saying that, he's saying that we're approaching a fellow believer as one who knows our own weakness and Christ's sufficient work to forgive us. Jesus was enough. That's the good news. We're not coming to them like, I'm slamming you. We're saying Jesus was enough to forgive me and forgive you too. John Calvin, going back to the 16th century um, theologian, said, we now see that the design of Christ was to guard us against indulging excessive eagerness or even peevishness or malignity or even curiosity in judging our neighbors. He who judges according to the word and the law of the Lord. And by the way, the law of the Lord is love. The Lord Jesus said that you want to boil down the whole law, it's love God and love others. So when, he said, when Calvin says, he who judges according to the word and the law, which calls us to love God and love others, and forms his judgment by the rule of charity, always begins with subjecting himself to examination and preserves a proper medium and order in his judgments. We deal with our issues first so that we're not a hypocrite, number one, but also so they get a chance to hear from someone who's freshly tasted forgiveness. So, we approach our brothers and sisters in Christ as one who carries both the sting of sin and the freedom of forgiveness in a personal and gentle way. Jesus said in Matthew 18, he said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. What Jesus does in Matthew 18 is says this, you are not going to be gossips. You are not going to be slandering people. You're not going to be getting into these think tanks of telling everyone about how messed up this person is. Instead, you're going to go right to the person because this person has created the image of God and I love them. Give them the dignity of approaching them. And if they, if they have issues and they're not listening to you, you care about this brother or sister in Christ. So you take two people. And, you, and, and so Jesus is doing that, this amazing amount of gentleness and personal, personal nature. Paul says in Galatians 6, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person how? Gently. Are Christians known for how we, gentle, how we, how we uh, restore people? Are we known for being gentle? 
Are we, are we known for being caring and smooth and, and sympathetic and sensitive? I have, I have botched this so many times in my own life, both as a pastor and as an individual. When my friend, I'm going uh, to be at a conference this week. I'm going to see my buddy, Victor Gamboa. I led Victor to the Lord, and it was just like one of these awesome things. And Victor started to lap me spiritually. Like his passion for Jesus was way greater than mine. And I was like, this is amazing. And I kind of felt insecure about that. Like, man, you're just a baby Christian. You're doing a, you love God far more than I do. What's wrong with this picture? But I had one thing over Victor. At that point in my life, I didn't cuss. Victor dropped F-bombs all over the place. And it was like one of those things where he was like, even talking about how excited he was about the Lord, he would use bad language. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that is not Baptist. You've got to stop that. And so I, I realized that God had put me in Victor's life to correct him. And so what I did was I, whenever Victor, you know, said, some, said a bad word or something, whoosh, I just punched him right in the arm in the love of Jesus. And I did that over and over again. And Victor initially was like, okay, all right, okay, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. And after a while, I was like, dude, why are you doing this? And I'll tell you why. I didn't tell this to him, but this is why I did it. It felt good <laughs> to see something Victor was doing that was sinful that I could call him out. And I, and I justified it by I'm trying to help this man be a stronger disciple. But it really came from pride. It was mishandled. And it certainly wasn't a personal and gentle way of handling the situation. When I see him tomorrow, I'm going to punch him in the arm. All right. <laughs> we approach our brothers and sisters in Christ as one who carries both the sting of sin and the freedom of forgiveness in a personal, gentle way for their good and God's glory. This is our goal. This has to be our goal. Their restoration and reconciliation. Um, one, one Christian writer put it this way. Maybe we cannot stop judging and punishing others because something about it feeds us and our appetite is insatiable. When we stand as judge, jury, and executioner over another, it gives us the feeling of being superior and righteous. And let's be honest, the alternative just does not give us the same feeling. The alternative, of course, is seeking to reconcile, restore, and renew. This does nothing to feed us. Rather, it asks us to feed others, including those who should know better and those who have wronged us. The alternative demands that we stand under the other and recognize we are all in need of reconciliation. And the people of God are called to be ministers of reconciliation. I just want to close by saying this. The amazing thing we see about being judgmental and judgmentalism is that judgment needs to happen. Wrong has been done. And when you hunger for justice, you want to see things made right, that's something that's very, very good. That's, that's, that's every follower of Jesus should have that. But we forget the fact that Jesus paid the judgment, that, that he's the one who actually paid for it. When we see in Romans 8, this reality come forth. I'm just going to read the first part of this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Look down to the middle part. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid for sin on the cross. He is the judge and the jury. And his ruling for anyone who would give their life to him is that all of our punishment and shame would be put on him. And so when we're approaching brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not coming from a morally superior angle or, or some type of authoritarian angle. Instead, we're coming as a fellow forgiven soul 
who without Jesus would be just as damned as they are. But because of Jesus, we have hope and restoration. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, for those of us in this room that are believers, give us your eyes for people, your heart, and your way. Help us understand that when we communicate with other believers about issues they have, Lord, we're coming as people who are humbly aware of the fact that we absolutely need your forgiveness as well. Help us come with that heart, that sentiment. Lord, for those in this room that are not believers, um, judgment is something that is right in their face. And so Lord, I pray that they come to the point right now of realizing your sole ability to forgive them, to take the judgment away, to take the shame, the punishment, all that you took upon yourself on the cross and in your resurrection, that they will experience that, that they will ask you and you alone for forgiveness and for new life. And Lord, that you will restore them starting in this moment. Give us all the ability to journey alongside one another as people who are sharpening one another for our restoration and for your glory. And we'll give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.